This is Customer Obsessed, the show that dives into the nitty-gritty challenges of entrepreneurship and genuine customer connection. In this episode, we're speaking with Kim Morrow, an executive coach, consultant, facilitator, and public speaker, as well as the co-founder of Forte Consulting and Inside Journey podcast. She shares why emotional intelligence is the foundation of effective leadership, how business leaders can inspire employees to embrace their company vision, and the essential qualities of good stories and storytellers. Ready to get customer obsessed? Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Customer Obsessed. I have to say I am doing fantastic today. Eric, how are you? Why? Fantastic. I'm doing great, too, but... What happened? Did something <laughs> well, happened. It's early on. Both- it's early on the West Coast there. Like, <laughs> well, happened? Biden and Harris won. Biden and Harris won, and that's really all I care about right now. <laughs> oh, okay. You're gonna get political on me out of the gate here. Jeez. <laughs> hey, it's it's a defining historic moment in our country. We voted in favor of humanity and democracy and wonderful, beautiful people, and I am just so incredibly excited. Also talk about the glass ceiling that has been completely shattered with Vice President-elect Harris, the first black and Indian woman elected vice president, first woman, right? So, so many, so many things happening there. And I'm so unbelievably proud. Yeah, no, she's, she was, she was pretty, she, she, that's history. I don't know if, if this election is history other than that, quite honestly, I think we've, we still had 70 million plus people vote for the incumbent. So there's obviously, you know, a lot that I think we've got to sort out as a country to, to figure out how to get on the same page with some of these, these topics. And they're the same topics, you know, it's healthcare, it's immigration, it's the economy, it's obviously COVID. In a broader sense, it's the climate, it's education. These are all topics that hopefully our government can, can be more productive in and how we work together. And I too uh, was happy with the results of the election, but I also believe that, you know, we can't just keep swinging back and forth between this vitriolic left and right. We've got to have a center that starts to govern this country again. I agree that there's a lot of work to be done, but there's a lot of hope right now. And we're going to have a lot of momentum. And I do believe that we can make change happen. I'm really looking forward to seeing it happen and helping make it happen in whatever way I can. But enough about politics. Let's talk about our incredible guest, Kim Morrow. Yes, Kim. She is the epitome of positive energy, period. And just to give our audience a little background, Kim was a valuable resource that we contracted with for several years at Blue Wolf. And Kim came in and really taught our company how to interact with customers, taught our company how to speak to customers, gave our company a common language that we could use both internally and externally when we were in our go-to-market moments. And we created this whole philosophy at Blue Wolf that no one owns the customer but someone always owns the moment, Uh, whether that's a salesperson or whether that's a consultant or a support person or whether that's someone on our marketing team or whether that's the front desk answering the phone and responding to an inquiry. Uh, We developed this belief that someone always owns the moment and that person needs to be equipped with 
the right language and the right approach uh, that we used with all of our customers. So Kim taught us how to present. She taught us how to run meetings. Uh, she taught us how to have what she called wins, learns, and changes after meetings. So if we'd come out of a customer meeting or we'd even come out of an internal meeting, we'd huddle as a group and say, all right, what did, where was the win? What did we learn? What do we need to change? And that was just one example of an amazing tool that she brought into Blue Wolf that became part of our culture that made us better in front of customers, made us truly customer obsessed. So we're going to hear from her today. She's since gone out on her own. She has her own company. She's consulting with CEOs and she's coaching teams of people to really help them perform at optimal levels uh, in front of their customers. Kim Sobel Morrow, how are you? Welcome to Customer Obsessed. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. How are things uh, out west? Things out west are good. I was, you know, the sky is blue, the fires are diminishing, um, all is well. Good, good. And you got, you got some kids at home doing some Zooming, is that right? The kids are home doing their school from home. I'm trying to do my business from home. Uh, lots of bonding time and yeah, lots of learns. So Kim, you're an executive coach. You're an amazing public speaker. You really schooled yourself on those things early in your career. You consult with Fortune 500 companies and executives. I like to call them needy executives <laughs> to improve business performance. But I guess, how did you get there? Like, what, what is your story? Yeah. And how did you get to where you are today? You know, I was working in sales and marketing in fashion at Levi's in New York for a number of years, wanting to find work that was more meaningful. I didn't really know what, ex you know, what I do now existed at the time, but I did a lot of soul searching and informational interviewing and found a company, a global sales and leadership consultancy that I ended up working with for 12 years. So I left something exciting for the hope of something more meaningful and I found it and I was with them for a number of years, moved back to the West Coast, which is where I'm from, to open their West Coast office. And while I loved it, I had small kids at home, I was traveling a ton, I had a very high pressure job, and I you know, decided I wanted to go out on my own and be an entrepreneur and have a little more control over who I worked with and how much I worked and, and all of that. So I started my own consultancy about eight years ago. And actually, Blue Wolf was my very first client. So oh, imagine that. Eight imagine years that. Ago. Wow, time yeah. flies. Well, I want to get to that part of your story a little later because we love to talk to entrepreneurs about the difficulty of making decisions and how you actually go out on your own. So I, I want to camp that for a second. Okay. But tell me about like, so you're in retail, you're in mm -hmm. a completely different industry, business, you're working at Levi's, you know, that brings with it its own set of culture and and industry and contacts and how you move up and how did you just how did you pull the ripcord on that and how difficult was that process was it an easy decision did you labor over it for months or years or what finally made it happen gosh it was certainly not an easy decision because i had such a cush job i loved who i was working with and um you know it was i was in new york and i was doing all sorts of really cool things but there was just this, this like little voice that said, I want to be making more of an impact. You know, I want to be doing something that's a little bit more connected to 
what I thought my purpose was at the time, which is kind of still the same, which is empowering people and mentoring people. And I was very interested in emotional intelligence, even though I didn't know what it was at the time and personal and professional development. And so I spent probably a year talking to all kinds of people that were doing things that sounded interesting and spending a lot of time researching on the internet. And I was at breakfast one morning on the Upper East Side with my cousin who worked in advertising. And I was just telling her about, you know, what I wanted to do or, you know, the kinds of things I wanted to be doing on a day-to-day basis. I want to be working with people. And, and she said, you know, there's this company that comes in and does these workshops at my ad agency, and I think you would love it. And so I literally cold called the company and I went up and met with them and they said, why don't you come through a two day presentation skills workshop where they were, they used all sorts of theater exercises to help people kind of unleash their voice and become more dynamic, confident presenters. And I went through this workshop and I absolutely loved it. And I thought, this is what I want to do. And one thing led to another, and I ended up making a career transition and and taking a job with a company called Rogen, which was a wonderful experience. Again, I was with them for 12 years. Yeah, that's how we met you. Yeah. Um, And a couple things. First of all, it always starts with a cold call. It just does. Those are the best ones. (laughs) It just does. I know. You just have to have the courage just to pick up the phone. Absolutely. Or knock on the door or send the awkward email or whatever your channel of choice is. It always starts with an outbound cold call. I just yeah. believe that. Yeah. Um, the other thing I will say is, you know, just for total clarification's sake for the audience, that is what we initially engaged you to do at Blue Wolf was literally to mm-hmm. teach us how to present. Mm-hmm. And our early engagements with you we would just stand and deliver. You gave us a framework. Mm-hmm. You recorded us, so we'd have to watch ourselves present. And whether it was a seller or a consultant or an internal product manager, everyone in our company went through this presentation skills course. And it was the first thing we worked with you on. We subsequently worked with you on a ton of stuff. Yeah. But that became just such a calling card inside of our company. Like, have you mm-hmm. gone through the presentation skills class? It's awesome. And I actually had customers come up to me months later and say, hey, this person changed overnight in front of us. What did they do? And we could always tie it back to that class. Amazing. Uh, which I still use to this day. Um, yeah. and, uh, and I know you work with all sorts of executives on, on, on those things. But I want to yeah. get back to one thing here. You used like a academic, corporate, um, next generation term, emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. What is that? <laughs> emotional intelligence is a term that was actually coined, I think, in the 80s by uh, somebody named Daniel Goleman. But essentially, it is about being able to be aware of your own emotions, moods, um, mindset, and how that affects the way you perform and the ability to really read and relate to other people. Um, So it's often described as emotional literacy, and it's really just being aware of how our emotions can drive our behaviors and impact people positively and negatively and ultimately the results that we get. So it's important. It's important. And for a long time, people thought 
IQ was more important than EQ, but there's so much research out that shows that, you know, unless you're someone who writes code and, you know, works in a little office and you don't have to interact with anybody, you know, other than that, if you have to work with other people in your role, regardless of what you do, you need to have emotional intelligence to be successful. I'd argue that there is not a job on the planet that falls into that category of you can lock yourself in a room and never talk to anyone. Right. Um, yeah. Okay. That's, that's big. Um, yeah. How do you measure it? Oh, if you're gosh. a leader, how do you ensure that your frontline employees that are working with customers that are trying to drive engagement? Because obviously I have to believe that it's difficult to be successful with customers and it's difficult to drive customer engagement without emotional intelligence. Yeah. So how do you know whether or not your folks have it? I think it's, it's really hard to measure the way you measure it is, you know, anecdotally, do you have happy customers? You know, what are the quality of the relationships like between your salespeople and your customers or your employees internally? Um, you know, are, are they developing trust over time and, you know, are they having really meaningful relationships? It probably also starts with your hiring too. Like how do you hire emotional intelligence? Cause it's, some of it's raw. I think some of it can probably be taught mm -hmm. and you can give people tools to be more aware or self-aware. Mm -hmm. But uh, a lot of it is probably the, the, the die is cast before they get to you, I would imagine. Right. And so often people are interviewing for skills, right? The technical skills, the project management skills, the sales skills. And, and I would argue those are easier to train. You know, you certainly can enhance and develop somebody's emotional intelligence, but it's about interviewing for more of like a mindset, right? Is this person hungry? Are they resourceful? Do they know how to roll up their sleeves and solve problems? How are they under stress? You know, do they have tools to kind of manage themselves and remain focused and calm and cool in, you know, really high stress situations? Those are the kinds of things that give you insight into somebody's emotional intelligence. Well, and I have a question about that regarding... So one of the things that I have have seen in job interviews and how people evaluate candidates, especially when they're looking for things like emotional intelligence, a lot of people tend to equate being outgoing with having a higher degree of emotional intelligence. And I think it puts people who might be a little bit more introverted uh, at a disadvantage. And I'm just wondering how, how, how do you recommend people f not fall into that trap of dismissing or discounting candidates who might not be as uh, gregarious in an interview, right? To really give yeah. some quiet people are very highly attuned to people's emotions and how to work with them and how to know themselves too. Yeah. Oh, that is such a great question, Erin. I mean, you know, emotional intelligence is also about self-awareness and self-regulation. Um, it doesn't, yeah, and the ability to build relationships. And it doesn't mean that you have to be really outgoing and gregarious to be able to do that. You know, um, you have to be authentic and you have to know yourself. And, um, but do you, even if you're, you know, more on the introverted side, do you have the ability to kind of stand in somebody else's shoes and have empathy and try to un look at the situation from their perspective? Mm -hmm. There are great salespeople or leaders or, you know, people in all roles that I've worked with, but work with a lot of people in banking and finance who are very more introverted, very numbers driven, 
but some still have the ability to, you know, really relate to other people by um, empathizing and asking questions and listening and trying to experience what the other person might be experiencing. So let me ask you a question. Um, when you walk, when you take a new customer on and, and you walk in and, and you're hired to work, I would assume emotional intelligence kind of touches upon all of your offerings and services, right? Whether you're teaching yeah. someone how to present or manage or trying to teach them how to inspire employees. Um, you know, it's kind of the underlying theme I think is, is EQ. Um, mm-hmm. you, have you ever just walked into a client and, and you know, you, you, you're a little skeptical to work with him and you get in there and you can just tell that the place is just a dud. It's just, <laughs> wow. Like I can't, this is like, this is beyond me. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. I was talking to um, someone we both know in common recently, and he asked me, "What? Who are? Who's your ideal customer? You know, what kind of companies do you like to work with?" And I said, "Honestly, it's less of a industry or a company size or what they put out. It's more about the people and how open are they to learning and growing and becoming more self-aware." So, to your point, yes, I have encountered people. Thankfully, not too many. I have to say. Um, who just exude very low EQ, have no interest in um, becoming more self-aware, taking a look at themselves in the mirror. They kind of, they are who they are. And, um, you know, I don't think they get as far in their careers if they have that mindset. Yeah, I agree with that. I actually, I have those traits too, believe it or not. Like if you had been hired, uh, if I didn't run Blue Wolf and didn't make the decision to hire you. So now Uh that was my decision. So I was like, was all in, right? Right. But if I was like in the bottom of the organization or the middle of the organization, and all of a sudden I had to have valuable time taken out of my day to go to this meeting, to meet with this woman who was going to teach me how to present. I mean, I, there's a side of me that would have been like, this is a waste of time. <laughs> who is this person? Like literally. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure you see those people yeah. in your in your engagements. And, right. and I guess you must try to hone in on them to like get them to get to the the good side of their brain because everyone yeah. has a dark side of their brain, right? Well, sometimes, I mean, when it comes to presenting, one of the best things to do is have the person stand up and pitch to you, yeah. you know, and suddenly they become a little bit more open to, you know, either they're experiencing their own suffering, you know, maybe they're nervous or they're uncomfortable. And so that's something that they want to move through or they realize, uh, I also do a lot of 360s, for example. So it's a great way to get a sense of, how you're perceived by others and is how you see yourself consistent or not with how other people perceive you. Um, because I always say perception is reality. So, you know, how you're landing on others is pretty important. Yeah. Standing and delivering is like just, and most people don't do it. You know, oh, I got the pitch down. I'll oh, send me the deck. Oh yeah, I'm good. Thanks. I'll go do it. Right. But Wait, how so often can- you, t- how often you take your team and say, no, today, like we want to see a pitch. It's the yeah. hardest audience to actually engage with are your peers. Oh, for Wait, sure. So Kim, can you explain this idea of this exercise around the 360? Because yeah. I think that's really fascinating. And I agree how you see yourself and how others see you is not always aligned. Yeah. And I've experienced that for myself where I'll see myself a certain way and then other people will give me feedback or share that they think this about me. And it's not that it's a bad thing, but it's totally different from how I see myself. And so I'm interested to hear how you work with people on that and 
what you do. Right. Because how you hope to come across or how you intend to come across is not always how you actually do come across. Um, Mm -hmm. So when I do executive coaching engagements, I often start with a 360 where I'll get on the phone with a handful of, you know, five or six or more stakeholders that work around the executive, maybe some people who are more senior, some peers, some, you know, 360. And I'll spend 20, 30 minutes on the phone with them finding out how do you perceive this person? What do you like about their style? What kind of presence do they have? How do they impact you positively, negatively? What words would you use to describe this person based on the way that they, you know, present themselves and and engage with you? And then I'll find the themes that emerge from all of those calls and I'll, you know, put together a two-page summary and I'll sit down with the executive and we'll talk about here's how, here's where people see you as really strong as a leader. And here are some areas that people feel, and usually it's, this is about helping take the executive to the next level, but sometimes Mm -hmm. it's, you know, kind of more of a fatal flaw. Like this is something that is really detrimental to your leadership and we have to address it. And people are varied in terms of how aware they are with the feedback they get from others. Um, and if they're really aligned, you know, they, how they see themselves is very consistent with how other people see them. Great. We have our work to do and it's a little bit easier because they already get it. And then sometimes when there's big gaps, it's about, you know, just making them more aware of um, the importance of, you know, just making, you know, how you come across is aligned with how you hope to come across. And, and we work through that. That's a big, that's a big bridge. It's a really yeah, big bridge. Yeah, it can be. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we talk a lot about the importance of a company having a vision, which is that audacious goal about a company having a solid strategy that tacks the company towards that audacious goal and about how companies need a plan, which mm-hmm. supports that strategy and typically is financially driven. We like to like break a company's efforts into those three categories. When we, when we think about visioning, how do you inspire employees to buy into a vision? How do you teach leaders how to properly communicate it or sell it? And, and really, how do you get an organization to embrace it wholeheartedly? Yeah. It's such a good question. It's, and it's a challenge that leaders often face, right? Is how do, we're clear, you know, we've been sitting in a boardroom creating the vision, getting excited by it, but how do I get the rest of my team to understand it, believe in it, feel excited by it and really align with it? Um, so I think a few things are important. You know, number one, people have to see the relevance to them. You know, what this big, hairy, audacious goal or this strategic statement what does it mean for the, the, you know, Joe Schmo salesman in Denver or the, you know, the engineer sitting in Buffalo, right? Like, what does it mean to them? And so the more that leaders can really translate, here's what the vision means for sales and here's what the vision means for, you know, product development and, and, and cascade it down throughout the organization, people start to see how they fit into the bigger picture. And I think now more than ever, people need to see that. They need to see, you know, how what they're doing on a day-to-day basis is help supporting and driving that vision. So that's the first thing is relevance. Mm-hmm. Um, people need to feel something. You know, mm-hmm. I always say people res- don't respond to a collection of facts. They, they, they respond to stories. They respond to how the leader made them feel. And so as leaders, we need to be able to communicate in a way that gets people excited, that instills trust, 
you know, and part of how you do that is through your physical delivery, your presence. Um, are you getting out there and communicating it over and over and over again? Are you communicating not just the what, but the why? I remember, Eric, when you um, were going through the process of selling Blue Wolf to IBM, and I just remember witnessing you and, and hearing about you as a leader and how in every, you know, hackathon or manager training or town hall or anytime you were in front of a group of people at Blue Wolf, you started with, you know, here's how you, you know, you might be feeling X, here's what this change is going to mean to you, you know, um, and really just constantly communicating that so people really believe it and trust it. Yeah. The whole notion of feeling, mm -hmm. how people feel is the ultimate, that, that's the ultimate outcome. And your words aren't necessarily going to dictate how they feel. Mm -hmm. It's the combination of your words with where they are, with your tone, with the level of energy in the room. Like if you're trying to communicate a tough message or a crazy vision to a bunch of people in a basement with no windows and old level or blinds and a yeah. whiteboard that hasn't been erased in months, they're not going to buy it because okay. they're like, what, where, where are we? So place is an important thing too. Where you're communicating to your people, are you in front of them? And obviously it's yeah. harder to do that today. Right. Uh, we had a great example, actually, a couple of podcasts back from John Maida from Publicis Sapien, who went out of his way to go to a colleague's house and take a selfie with him and use that image as part of his communication strategy because he wanted the team to see that leadership was together. Amazing. And the picture was more important than whatever the heck he wrote in his communication. It right. said everything, right? So I think you've got to combine your message and your words that you're trying to communicate your vision with, with the window dressing and the intangible things that create the feeling that is the outcome. Because if they walk out of that room feeling happy and inspired and feel like you've been empathetic to their journey, they're going to go and try to shoot the moon for you. Absolutely. I was just reading about the New Zealand prime minister. Um, I don't know if you've been following yeah. her much, Jacinda Ardern. Oh my God, right? I love her. <laughs> She's Amazing. And she's been praised over and over for her leadership style during the pandemic. And, you know, I remember reading that when New Zealand began its lockdown on March 25th, she addressed the nation via a casual Facebook live session that she conducted on her phone after she put her toddler to bed. She was dressed in like a sweatshirt, had a little spit up on it, um, and just spoke using straight talk and some mom jokes and just very authentically to relate to people. And people feel and felt then cared for, you know, and I think you're absolutely right. It's the setting, the environment, the way that you speak to people, that's what they remember is how you made them feel, not what you said necessarily. Yeah. And they can see through corporate speak and policies. And if you're too prepared when you are presenting a vision to a team. If if you're too scripted, people don't trust it. You have to be yourself because that's part of the story is being a human being. Yeah. And we're all in this together and no one's actually smarter than the next person. We're just a group of people and we've assigned some leadership and everyone needs to row in the same direction. 
I mean, when I coach people and they are more focused on getting the words right and remembering their script, you know, I just want to shake them and say, just, you know, yes, have a roadmap, have a plan, but speak from your heart. And people don't know if you forgot a line or two, but they will know if you're really focused on connecting with them or if you're more focused on remembering your script. Absolutely. And I think your personality comes out when you're off script. It's Mm -hmm. never going to come out in a script. Even if you say the most personal thing, if they can tell it was scripted, they're like, well, is it really true? Is it, why did they write that? That's right. Yeah, I feel like, too, that part of practicing is getting so familiar just with the general ideas behind mm-hmm. the content that you can be more spur of the moment and you know improvise when you need to and respond to the energy in the room. And I think that's another, just tying it back to emotional intelligence is being able to tailor your messaging to how people are responding. It's actually one of the beauties, right? If you go to like a live theater performance mm-hmm. and they change certain things that they're doing based on how they see the audience reacting to them. It's mm-hmm. a similar kind of thing where you rehearse and you rehearse and you rehearse to get those key points right. And then you can just go with it in the moment. I love that. Instead of thinking, what do I want to tell this person or my audience? You have to think about what do they need to hear from me in in order to see the value in what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So being much more externally focused. And also you must be inspired to be inspiring. You need to find the inspiration. You know, you need to find the interest yourself in your topic because it'll naturally come through more if, if you're really connected to the message. Yeah. And don't talk about yourself. Don't use the word I. Anytime you are speaking to a group of people, if you're thinking the word I say, we, Mm. You know, it's a little mnemonic device. Is that right? Did I get that right? I couldn't, don't ask me how to spell mnemonic. I think so. Is that like, (laughs) and I think you taught me that. We, 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 it just brings them in. For sure. You know, you see so many leaders up there. I, management committee decided this. We had a great quarter because we did this or Mm -hmm. I did this. Like get I out Mm -hmm. of your nomenclature, period. For sure. Destructive word. Yeah. 100%. Let's switch gears for a second. Okay. So you're a mother of two. You're a mm-hmm. wife. You run your own business serving those needy corporate executives. And I've watched you do it. You know, you show up with insane energy anytime you show up. I've mm-hmm. never seen you show up anywhere looking a little frazzled or looking like you're distracted. Uh, you know, you're just always engaged when you're with your clients. It's, it's who you are. But how do you keep balance in your life? And what advice do you have for professional women that want to raise families, but also want to stay engaged in the workplace, yeah. or even better, start their own businesses? Gosh, uh, it's such a big question. Thank you for that compliment. I was reading recently um, The Charisma Myth. I don't know if you've read that book, but I love to evaluate people um, in terms of, are they strong? Are they warm? And are they present? Because that combined creates executive presence. This is a little off topic. But this idea that in order to have presence, you need to really be present. And so going to your question, you know, um, 
there's so many things you can do to really be present in the moment. And as women, we're juggling, we're shifting gears. We, so many of us are, right? With kids, with work, with so many things that we're juggling, we're constantly shifting gears. So do I have the ability to take five minutes like this morning? You know, I'm dealing with a sick kid and a, you know, other stuff happening before this podcast. But if I don't take those five or 10 minutes to myself to take a few deep breaths and to get centered and to really think about what is my intention for this podcast, you know, then it'll probably show up that I'm a little bit more frazzled or, or distracted. So I think, um, carving out even five minutes a day for yourself to just do whatever it is that makes you feel grounded and connected. Maybe it's going in your backyard and just feeling the sun on your face or taking some breaths or maybe, you know, going for a quick walk. Um, I think it's also really important to do work that doesn't, you know, I feel so fortunate in mm. that my work doesn't feel like work mm. most of the time because it really, I love it and it nourishes my soul, you know, and my dad, who was an entrepreneur and a kind of a workaholic used to say, you know, work doesn't feel like work when it's your passion. And so I think for people finding your passion, finding your North star, finding your reason for getting out of bed in the morning. And, and even if you're doing a job that you're not loving at the moment, if, you know, if you love fixing things or you love bringing humor to situations or you love empowering people, how can I bring a little bit more of that into the work that I'm doing right now? Um, and then the third thing I'd say is boundaries, you know, knowing how to say no is particularly hard for women. I'm generalizing. Hmm. It's hard for a lot of people. I think especially now working from home where the lines between work and life, you know, are very blurred. Um, it's hard to say no. And I know for me, for so long, I was, I am a yes person. Yes, I'll do that. Yes, that sounds amazing. Yes, I'll do this other thing. But um, when you constantly say yes, you are saying no to Sometimes the things that are most important, like your own self-care or your family or your relationships. So it's I have hard a little to, piece yeah, to, and it's, yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I think um, that may be something that women struggle with more than men do. Mm -hmm. um, but the problem with saying no is how do you decide what's important and not important? Yeah. You know, as I've gotten older and, and gone through my career, I've tried to develop this little question in my head, every time someone asks me for something, you know, it's just a quick little 30 second, like how important is this? What is the impact of it? Who is it going to impact? Mm -hmm. And, you know, that helps me answer that question. Uh, yeah. And is it just a waste of time? Like you probably don't have this issue because you don't work inside of a big company, mm -hmm. but I, I almost think, and tell me if I'm wrong here, because there's a lot of risk and fear that, people have to overcome to go out on their own and start their own business and they can new businesses fail all the time. Mm -hmm. But once you've crossed that bridge and you, and now you're running your own business as a working mother, you can control your own time. Whereas if you're embedded in a massive corporation and you're trying to play politics and you don't know who's for you and against you, you start trying to show up to every single meeting to figure out what's going on. And 80% of these meetings are useless. They're, yeah. as our friend Mariano from Mural will say, they're bad meetings. Like right. You don't have to have a lot of bad meetings where you are today, I would imagine. Right. That's true. It's 
easier for me, but I have so many clients that work in, inside of big organizations that come to me with this very challenge that you're describing. And I think that, um, you know, for so many people, it's like they're on autopilot and they think that they just have to say yes to everything without stopping. And, you know, I love how you had, it sounds like a, a list of criteria and I have the same thing. It's this little crumpled up piece of paper on my computer with five questions. Can I make an impact? You know, am I passionate about this work? Um, and a few others that I use to decide, is this a yes or is this a no? And I, I think the other thing is that often people don't think they, they have this mentality that they have to do it all themselves, but actually who else could be great for this? You know, who can I delegate this to that maybe is really good at this thing or is the, the better person to be in this meeting? And, you know, so it's just kind of stopping and asking yourself, is, is this impair? I mean, is this essential? Or, cause I think often if they start to unpack that, they realize maybe, maybe I can say no a little bit more. Maybe I can get other people involved. Right. Well, and Eric, I think that connects back to, I mean, this point around delegation and finding the best fit for a particular task and really giving people a chance. I feel like this connects back to our conversation with Stan Slap, where we were talking about that shift that you needed to take right between being an entrepreneur and being hands-on with everything and switching more into that leadership role. Would you say that that's accurate here? Is that directed at me or at Kim? Yeah. <laughs> uh, absolutely. No, I, I yes, 100%. And, and leadership's a big piece of this, right? Because as leaders, we ask our teams to do things all the time. Mm -hmm. And we have to ask ourselves, like, am I wasting their time? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the narcissist obtuse leader never thinks that he or she is wasting anyone's time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of them expect that you're going to be on 24 seven and they can do calls at seven in the morning or seven o'clock at night, which are witching hours for families. And yeah, I think great leaders today are using technology and using the efficiency of business that didn't exist 15, 20 years ago to create more time for their employees to live their lives and have balance. Because mm -hmm. if you have a good family situation, you're going to be a better contributor. You're going to be more engaged at work. Customers will feel that. Um, you know, that's right. I, I'm a huge believer in that. Yeah. I remember when Blue Wolf, you know, you used to have like a vacation policy that you didn't have a vacation policy. It was like, take the time you need to take care of yourself. Right. Didn't you have that? No vacation policy. The truth of the no matter is we just didn't want to have to track vacation days, but because <laughs> we couldn't figure out how to do it. So we're like, well, let's just not have vacation days then. <laughs> Take your time off when you need to take it off. But it it, it actually turned into a, a, a real battle cry for us for years before mm -hmm. just about every other next generation company on the planet adopted it, mm -hmm. which was trust your people. Like trust your if people. someone's taken three weeks off going to the Bahamas and their work's suffering, then they're going to go on a plan and yeah. they're not going to be with your business long. Right. But guess what? If they're going to the Bahamas for three weeks and they're crushing it, either you're not giving them enough work or they're not taking enough on or they're really good. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> that's good. Like it's fine. Yeah. And people are experiencing burnout right now. I mean, again, because they're getting up and they're, they don't have to get in the car and drive to the office. They're just starting their work, you know, before their feet hit the floor. Um, I think leaders are concerned about their people burning out. Yeah. And so 
I was telling Aaron, actually, I'm reading this book right now called 24 six, which is it's written by a woman who is a big tech person, big filmmaker, founder of the Webby Awards, loves technology and the internet and being connected, but also recognizes we're not meant to be working and available 24 seven. And so she and her family take a 24 hour break every week, weekend to right. completely unplug and how that down. actually, yeah. you know, it boosts their creativity. She says she's so creative Sunday morning when she gets up after this 24 hour technology detox. Yeah. Um, they're more connected to one another. They're more productive the rest of the week. So I just, I love that. I'm going to start well, that this weekend. And back to your burnout comment. I think the thing that we are all suffering from right now is we don't have external stimuli. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, I can't just put my stuff down and grab a colleague and say, let's walk over to Starbucks. Mm -hmm. I can't go to the gym in the middle of my day and be around a bunch of other people and let my mind move in a, in a new direction. Like we don't have, I, I mean, I used to, when I commute, used to commute in New York city, I loved walking through grand central station. Mm -hmm. I loved it. Mm -hmm. There were thousands of people there. It's a beautiful building people are going in all directions. Yeah. Everyone's on their way. And that just fed my, it inspired me every morning. And I would take that into the office mm -hmm. and maybe I'd change something I was about to do because of that inspiration. And it was always external stimuli that at least for me personally would, would help me create. And we don't have that external st stimuli right now in the way that we yeah. did in the old workplace. It's so true. It's I'm, I've been discussing with some colleagues, this time feels like the great reshuffling in that people are re-examining what inspires them or how to be inspired. They're re-examining their work and what they love to do. A lot of companies are changing people's roles to make them better suited for their just people are discovering newfound gifts and talents that they didn't know that they had. And, you know, so it's, you're right. It's, um, it's a time to really Re, like find new inspiration. My husband is a lawyer. I don't know if I told you this. And he's always had an interest in painting and, and he's got a very creative side. We'd go to dinner and he'd sketch on a napkin and he's really good. So last January for his birthday, I bought him a bunch of canvases and paints and they sat in the corner and collected dust for months. But when shelter in place happened, he pulled them out. And now, I mean, I, if I can't turn a corner without seeing a painting in my house, he's got wow. about 15 paintings. He loves it. And he comes home and he, it's the first thing he does. He like drops his work and sits down at the table and starts painting and it gives him such energy and it's a stress relief. And, um, it's neat to witness someone sort of discovering a new found passion. Wow. That's a great story. Yeah. How do you make people better storytellers? Like we, we talk about how customers don't care about facts. They mm -hmm. care about how they feel. It's more emotional than it is factual. And I yeah. fully believe that's what the buying experience is all about. Whether the head of procurement at company XYZ wants to agree with me, deals don't happen without that emotional moment. And those emotional moments typically come through a collection of stories that they've consumed through a brand. How do you teach people to be great storytellers? Mm, such a good question because you're so right. People remember stories. They don't remember, a, you know, a bunch of data points. Um, so there's a few things that, you know, I think that 
people really struggle with, how do I bring a story into this presentation? And so the first thing you have to do is ask yourself, okay, what's the point that I'm trying to make with this? Like whatever story I come up with, what's the point I'm trying to drive home? You know, so it's, it's a little easier to come up with a story if you've first gotten clear about the point you're trying to make. And then, you know, often it doesn't even have to be the greatest story in the world, but the minute you start telling a story, it's amazing to see the effect it has on the listener. People sit up in their seats, they start paying attention more. It's primal, right? We all hmm. grew up with stories and people love them. So, you know, you've got to, you got to find a way to take people on a journey, right? So a good, any good story has a beginning, a middle and an end. It has, you know, the situation, the complication, the resolution. It's like the, um, the, the story structure that goes back to the ancient Greeks. Um, you got to get people to care, um, you know, touching on the emotions that you or the person felt in the story, um, creating vivid images in people's minds. And you have to love to tell it. It has to be a story that you feel connected to and you're inspired by. And that passion or that energy is, I think, is contagious. I love it. Yeah, it's so important. It's all we are. Yeah, you're such a great storyteller, Eric. Oh, thank you, Kim. That is so nice of you to say that. It's true. And when I think about like what I know about you or what I remember about you, it's always through the stories you tell. Like you've told stories about your mom and what an influence she's been on your life and, you know, stories about when you were a first time manager, you know, that's what people, I'm sure with your, your podcasts, right. Or Ted talks, people remember the stories that, um, that are told. So Kim, just related to just the importance of, of stories, I would love to hear from you. And I think this connects not just to storytelling, but to EQ and, and helping people understand themselves and the world around them. I'd love for you to share a work of fiction, a novel, a play, poem that you love and that's made a really lasting impact on you. Well, I love, I love reading. I love reading fiction. Um, there's a book I read probably about a year ago, Americana, which is a very powerful story of race and identity by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. I don't know if you, um, yes. Yeah. I've read, I've read it. Oh, I loved it. She's a feminist author and famous for many novels and the Ted talk, we should all be feminists. Um, and it's just, it really inspired me to think about, you know, um, it, it examines blackness in America and, um, wraps together race and gender and immigration and, and class and, uh, many other ideas into this beautiful love st story spanning many years and continents. And it just really prompted me to think about, you know, what is it like for, you know, that experience of migrating to the U S for the hope of, of a better life. And, um, it's obviously something that we're talking a lot about at home with our kids, and, um, yeah, I just, I loved it. I loved her writing. I loved, I loved all of it. Sounds beautiful. I'm definitely going to pick that up. Yeah, it's great. So I told you, right, Aaron, how about that energy? Infectious. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. I'm, I'm going to be riding that high all day. And then it's just going to keep, uh, keep infecting me as with joy as I continue to edit. That's one of the bonuses about being the editor of the podcast is I get to kind of soak up everything from our guests kind of over and over as I, as I clean everything up. So, <laughs> you know, I was always really nervous about engaging third parties at Blue Wolf because I just, I didn't want to, well, I was cheap for starters and I just didn't want to like have all these consultants swarming around our company. That's but a little Kim, ironic. 
the, the which is bit. ironic, right? Because we wanted to be the <laughs> consultants swarming around our customers' companies. But, you know, Kim just became one of those objective third parties that we could engage at our events and for our training and through all of our professional development exercises that people trusted her. She brought a little bit of a different viewpoint. She had incredible infectious energy, like I've said. And, you know, we just knew that if she was involved in something, it would come out of the oven tasting better. I mean, that's not an advertisement for Kim, but it might as well be, right? She's she's really phenomenal. And, and I love what she's doing. What do you think? I loved it. And I mean, I don't think I ever had the opportunity to take any of Kim's workshops while she was at Blue Wolf, even though I was there um, at the time, but I was always uh, interacting with her in other ways, helping get everything set up and squared away. And so I could always listen in and just chat with her one-on-one. And and so I just picked up on certain things through that, which was always really, really wonderful. And I think one of the great things about her approach is, as you say, getting people to think about things differently and getting them to engage in a bit of self-examination and and self-critique, which can be really, really powerful and useful because if you don't think there's anything to change, it doesn't matter how many people give you great advice or, or great techniques. You have to be the one to accept the need, recognize where you're lacking and really work on that for yourself. Yeah. I can't underemphasize uh, also the, f- the way that she would make us stand and deliver. Mm-hmm. We would have to present back to her all the time, and it was terrifying. But once you went through it, you all of a sudden gained so much confidence in your presentation style. And she wouldn't work on just what you were saying. She would work on how you were saying it and the inflection of your voice and taking moments of pause to gather the audience's attention and to make eye contact with one individual for one point and then move your eye contact to another individual for another point, whether you're talking to a room of 10 people or a thousand people. And so it was all of these little skills that she would teach us just made us engage with customers at a deeper level, which created trust, which helped us win more deals, which helped us get through tougher projects, which helped us recruit the right talent. Like it all just manifested itself throughout our business. And I would say that there are very few businesses in this land that don't require that level of interaction. And I will say too, that even if you aren't able to work with somebody like Kim, the whole stand and deliver practice can also be really effective if you simply record yourself and then watch it after. I know that sounds like a very cringeworthy project, and it is. It's very uncomfortable to have to watch yourself present and critique, but you will start to pick up on speech patterns, habits, movements, and you can start to break down your own presentation style to identify where you could have paused, as you say, where you're saying filler words too much, like, um, uh, right, things like that, even certain phrases that you use repeatedly. And so it's a very useful exercise, 
even if you can't bring somebody else in to help you work on it, there are things that you can do on your own and with your own teams to put those uh, practices into play. So she pretty much eradicated ums from my vocabulary. It's all about the pause. It's all it's about, about the, the pause. insignificant pause that gives weight to what you're saying and also allows you enough time to gather your thoughts and think about what you're going to say next that allows you to eliminate a lot of that filler. 100% agree. Thanks for listening to our interview with Kim Morrow. We'll share the resources and books we mentioned in the show notes at customerobsessed.net. And don't forget to sign up for the Customer Obsessed newsletter to stay up to date and get bonus clips and exclusive content. If you're a fan of the show, don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss a customer-obsessed moment.